Welcome to Drift, a post-national digital pavilion reflecting on the entanglement between land and water, movement and motherlands and otherlands. My name is Caitlin and in this first episode we explore the theme of imagination and borderlessness and delve into questions like how to unbuild a nation, who gets to imagine borderlessness, can multiple imaginaries of nation coexist, and why aren't all countries present at the Venice Biennale? In April 2022, during the Venice Biennale, Inova's artistic director, Sapake Andiyama, mediated a conversation between artists Sonia Boyce, Stan Douglas, Zainab Sidera, and Yuki Kahara, interrogating what is nation. In the conference hall of what was once an unassuming monastery, a packed audience faces the stage, eagerly awaiting the second panel of the day to start. As the conversation gets underway, an easy familiarity settles in amongst the four artists as they explore what is nation. This exploration naturally led to questions of representation like, what does it mean to represent a nation? In this episode, we'll start by hearing from artist Sonia Boyce, commissioned by the British Pavilion, and artist Yuki Kahara, commissioned by Aotearoa, or the New Zealand Pavilion for the Venice Biennale who both challenged the idea of representing a nation. We'll be weaving these pieces of conversation together with other interviews from curators, artists and creative practitioners invited by Innova in order to delve into the heart of the themes of each episode. So, what is nation? Can I first start by saying my immediate response to what is nation or what does it mean to represent nation? I immediately thought, who do we imagine constitutes nation? And I think that that really is quite critical to this discussion. With the people that I've been working with, and this, you know, I've been working with a whole range of people over 20, nearly 30 years, I'm always struck by the way in which the people that I'm working with and the nature of the work that happens is not tied to a singular set of questions about nation, but it's about relations, whether they are local relations that stretch far across the world. You know, and I think that this is really important within the project that I've been doing, where the composer Erilyn Wallen and the four singers, that is Jackie Dankworth, Poppy Ajuda, Tanita Tikaram, and Sophia Jernberg, they've all had careers within the British music scene but they all have relationships beyond and within this idea of nation. So I think it's really difficult to talk about nationhood in that singular way. And I'm particularly interested in the way that sound, for instance, you know, it bleeds, it travels. It's difficult to, to contain the voice and the sound because it's always present with us in some way. So these are the things that I'm kind of working with. It always feels really strange to say, okay, you know, and I've been asked quite a lot, you know, how does it feel to represent the UK in the British Pavilion? And I kind of think, my only answer to that is I was born in London and I'm an artist. But that doesn't contain it all, but in some ways, pragmatically, it says enough for me. I basically hijacked the New Zealand Pavilion. Um, before I start talking about 
my exhibition, Paradise Camp, curated by Natalie King, I first of all need to state that my family uh, acknowledges me as a fa'afafine. So fa'afafine is made up of two compound uh, Samoan words. So fa'a meaning in the manner of, and fa'afafine meaning woman, in the manner of a woman. So it's a term that's used to describe those uh, who are assigned male at birth, who express their gender in the feminine way. We also have uh, fa'atama, meaning in the manner of a man, which is a term used to describe those who are assigned female at birth, who express their gender in a masculine way. And then together with cisgender, gender man, Tama, and cisgender woman, Fafine, we make up four genders in our Samoan society. So it's a culturally recognized gender. However, Fafafine and Fatama are not legally recognized. And the reason why it's not legally recognized is because Samoa uh, was a colony of New Zealand from 1914 to 1962. So on the eve of our independence, the New Zealand colonial government imposed two laws directly targeting the Fafafine community. So the first one was a banning of female impersonation by any male in public, and second one was homosexuality. And I believe that the reason why the New Zealand administration imposed these laws is because they saw the Fafafine community as being an impediment towards Samoa's progress towards independent nation building. So the idea of independence in Samoa is actually heteronormative. So what I wanted to do with my exhibition, Paradise Camp, was to imagine a Fafafine utopia where colonial heteronormativity is shattered to make way for indigenous ways of understanding that is more inclusive and acknowledges the sensitive towards the changes in the environment. But beneath the surface of paradise, which is something that is continually perpetuated you know, by many explorers and artists in the tourism industry, is that you know, beneath the surface of paradise lies the real life stories of the Fafafine community working through the colonial legacies of gender, sexuality, and the environment, specifically to the social and political context in Samoa. So when you say, you know, what is the nation? I'm representing the nation of Fafafine. <laughs> I'm representing the nation of Fafafine. And I'm also proud to say that the Paradise Camp was made with the cast and crew of all Samoans, which is amazing because, you know, we've never had a production scale of 100 Samoans shot on location in Upolu Island. Everybody in Samoa doesn't know what the Venice Biennale is, but when I told them that it's a big international event, there was enough to kind of galvanize everybody's support towards the project. Some Fafafinis were problematic because they thought I was going to treat them with like red carpet and everything, like being on set. And I was really surprised when the New Zealand government, you know, selected myself, you know, to represent the Aotearoa New Zealand because I'm Fafafine, Samoan and Japanese, and it's a triple threat to middle-class white people, you know, in Aotearoa. But I'm honored to be representing the Fafafine community. And, you know, I was really elated, you know, when the New Zealand government gave me all this money, I could give it to all the Fafafines. So, you know, it's great to be hijacking and, you know, giving a bit of a payback. I'm Catherine, Catherine Chang. My Korean name is Hyunso, Hyunso Chang. I'm known as both Catherine and Hyunso. I got involved in this project because in 2018, when I was at the Korean Cultural Center, 
as an exhibition coordinator than the assistant curator. I worked with Yun Chol on his solo show there. Um, he was the artist of the year um, at the Korean Cultural Center in 2018. And I guess I just fell in love with his work and I've been kind of following him around <laughs> ever since then. And, you know, he got selected as the artist representing Korea in August last year. We came together, there's, you know, my other colleague, Kahi, she used to work at the Korean Cultural Center in Berlin. Um, I guess we all kind of gathered together to make this amazing thing. And actually, it's been a really team effort in making this exhibition. We came with 14 people from Korea. They're all actually artists themselves. And because we actually had to realize the production in three months, it's like every single person who came and who's helped in Korea has been just incredible. And it's really been a team effort. So I can't give myself too much credit. It's really everybody who's been involved in this project. And of course, you know, Yun Chol. When I said there's no dominant entity nor a single voice, I think that's very much relevant to what we've done, you know, with the works as well. And with the Korean Pavilion this year, you can literally put any flag up there. It doesn't have to be Korea. And I think this idea of nationhood is, it creates these borders. You know, these borders don't actually physically exist. It's just an idea in our mind. The central theme behind the exhibition is the scattering of this dominant power. For us, for me and the artists and everybody who worked on this exhibition, we don't want to have this clear boundary of a nation. These boundaries are all blurring. My name is Kirsty Flockhart. I'm an emerging curator. Originally from Australia, currently living in London. It's really good to explain that like being from Australia, we're all immigrants. We're all like people who've kind of moved there predominantly. You know, unless you're Indigenous Australian, you're not from there. But it's really interesting growing up with this sense of Australia identity and the fact that so many people don't question that or don't consider it. And then you have different types of migrants who feel more or less comfortable there because of the way you look and, and your race. So for example, like both my parents are immigrants and then in at least my small community of friends, like my closest friends, all of their parents or grandparents are all immigrants. I don't know, it's sort of made me, I've had this ongoing interest with trying to figure out like what is nationalism, what is national identity, how do you define that and how that changes and then looking into the arts and how different art projects across the world are sort of also exploring that, interrogating that. I was originally not interested in the Venice Biennale, but I did spend many years working with the Sydney Biennale. And then I was really interested in the Havana Biennial and then sort of looking at the counter exhibits and biennials of resistance. And that was sort of what I was really wanted to pursue, was looking at the sort of Guangzhou Biennial um, and the Havana, for example. But really at the end of the day, there was just sort of almost too much of a body of work done about these major exhibits all around 1989. And then I started thinking about, well, really it was the Diaspora Pavilion, was what really struck out to me that was just this sort of really amazing initiative that just had such ambition and scope and it sounded great. Like it just, for me, it was just a wonderful long-term project that was sort of based over almost two years and I found that really inspiring and I just feel like looking at the diaspora as their own not as their nationality but it was just so interesting 
using the format of like a national pavilion and then subverting that into mm-hmm. something else and thinking about like who doesn't fit into this structure and what happens when we subvert it in that sense and then how can we do that in a really interesting way and so it was a combination of subverting that current structure of the biennales and the pavilions but then also the fact that it also sat in within a sort of larger program that was really focused on building a rapport building a relationship fostering relationships and then giving like these emerging artists who otherwise may not have had the same opportunities opportunities to not just participate in the Venice Biennale but then also like travel around the world to these other amazing global exhibitions but it sort of really highlights how problematic it is and how much it is about nepotism and money and finance and who can afford to actually travel and go to these things it was sort of me being slightly obsessed with the Dice Pavilion and what they were attempting to achieve and I just thought that's so cool and I haven't really heard anything else like that. I loved every aspect of it at first. And so yeah, I started thinking about okay, well let's let's start focusing in my dissertation on the Diaspora Pavilion and what they're doing in the context of the Venice Biennale since that is the leading, I guess, like hegemonic structure that was repeated and copied cut and paste essentially that format and that structure all over the globe. So then it sort of became really interesting thinking about if you have this sort of structure and it's it's so powerful that it's being emulated everywhere else in what ways can you keep i guess interrogating that and keeping that interesting and inspiring my name is Tering Sherpa and I'm here showing at the Nepal Pavilion Pavilion of Nepal this is our first participation in the Venice Biennale. The title of the exhibition is Tales of Muted Spirit, Dispersed Thread and Twisted Shangri-La and the show is curated by Sheila Sharaj Bandari and Hitman Gurung. This is very exciting for us because I think Nepal has never been represented in Venice even in the main like uh, Arsenale any Nepali art the importance for us for this opportunity is because I think many times as Nepal as a country you don't have this opportunity to tell your stories in your own narrative so this will be an opportunity for us to do that so we're really excited yeah well, nation actually didn't exist. For example, my father happens to come from the Himalayas. So the region where I think when he was telling us the stories of how his grandparents were so mobile within the Himalayan region, nation was not important at that time. There were no borderlines. So my grandparents would have their yak and they used to herd yaks and sheep in the Himalaya and they could like uh, go wherever the greener pastures were and they would keep on moving their home, their cattle everywhere. So this nation building is very, very recent phenomena. Yeah, so I was just having this conversation with my father, I, I think just a few months ago, that he was telling us the story. So, of course, that is a conversation that needs to be further talked about, but uh, I'm also very inspired by pavilions like Sami Pavilion, where a group of like-minded artists come together, community come together, and then maybe questioning the whole idea of nation. 
There's a really good essay that was written by a Tongan scholar, the late Tongan scholar. Uh, his name is Ipeli Ofa, and he wrote a really good essay called um, Sea of Islands. He talked about how, you know, all these uh, Western explorers, you know, came into the Pacific region and drew up all of these lines that we now establish what is a nation with the economic zones and things like that. Um, so I would also like to extend that notion of these, you know, man-made borders to, you know, to also apply the same logic to how gender, sexuality, race and identity politics are all kind of, you know, framed under these man-made borders that we all kind of feel trapped by. It's important that we're really conscious of these man-made constructions because it has real impacts. I mean, for example, in my Samoan passport, uh, my sex is described as an M, but in my New Zealand passport, I was an M, an X, and an F. You know, I have the privilege to be part of the New Zealand country and the citizen of New Zealand to enable to change the gender in my passport, but I can't do that with Samoa. So we're still living in the colonial legacy of New Zealand. So while New Zealand decolonizes itself, we're kind of still stuck there. But at the same time, it's the problem for Samoans to solve. It's our problem, you know, and it's our sovereignty to solve it. And as much as I plead to the Samoan community to, to accept us, at least it's our problem. That it's not somebody else telling us how we should solve it. And I think true sovereignty and independence and true decolonization is actually really painful. Oh my gosh, it's so painful. But if we want true sovereignty and a true understanding of each other, then we actually have to go through this process, even though we are victims of this kinds of discrimination based on these man-made borders. You know, when we look at, for example, like Francophone Pacific, the French Polynesia, right? When Paris said same-sex marriage goes for everybody in France, that also impacted also the colonies in the Pacific. But did they ever ask the indigenous people in the Francophone Pacific if that's something they wanted? They had no say. So. Well, maybe it's okay for a gay person to be in this uh, francophone territories, you know, to, you know, to say, yeah, you know, wave the gay flag and now we can fully embrace same-sex marriage. The indigenous people of those places were never given a choice to whether if that's something that's appropriate for their community. So there's pros and cons. In Samoa, we don't have those kinds of same-sex marriage conversations. But at least we didn't have outsiders telling us that same-sex marriage is something that it should be for everybody because it's our decision to decide whether it's okay for us. And as painful as it is for the Papini community to work through that, but it's our problem, you know, and then we get to decide how we want to shape our nation. So... By representing the nation of Canada, I want us to not represent the nation of Canada. I want us to sort of avoid this whole idea of nationhood altogether because nations are and nations aren't. Nations are fictions which are there to create an identity which is useful for certain utility, but often has some very pernicious uh, side effects. Surprisingly, but maybe not surprisingly, it originates in the New World, in these settler uh, colonies where people who were from elsewhere wanted, felt they belonged in a place and to have a sort of a tie to that place and a, and a commonality. And it was later exported back to the old world. You know, being from Canada, where that, that thing, that sort of dynamic is still in play, 
is a very peculiar thing. So I wanted to not deal with um, any kind of fixed notion of identity, territorial identity, but look at the way in which we share things as a larger community. In that case, by tying the revolutions of 1848 to a common-wide expression of uh, disquiet and, and distress within Europe that led to the nation states which have very serious problems of their own that we see now in Ukraine and, and Russia, but also to tie it to what happened in 2011 across the globe, from Tunis to New York to London to Vancouver, which was clear as it was happening when I saw it, would not have the same political efficacy as the 1848. It would be something treated like a police event and then forgotten about. But I wanted to treat those moments like a political expression, even if it is just a complete expression of political fury or fury at the, the conditions on which people are living. So in that way, I want to present my nation's position as a one community among a very complex and fluid community. That is a bit of a downer, but uh, the, the work we're showing in the uh, magazine The Sally is much more optimistic, which shows a collaboration between musicians in the UK, musicians in Cairo, who don't speak the same language, don't have the same culture, but through a common musical language derived, no doubt, from the internet, they're able to find a way of collaborating and a way of finding joy. You know, when you uh, nominated, you asked pretty quickly to provide a, a smaller text on what you'd like to do. And actually, you know, I straight away said I wanted to do, you know, a reverence or homage to the uh, film festival of Venice, the Mostra, ending that to Algeria and France. And there is a lot of stories around those three countries and the Mostra. And I quite pretty much stuck to the little kind of text summary that I gave very early on, which was something like February 2020, just before the lockdown. And then I spent all my time researching, traveling a lot, because this is part of the way I work. I research a lot in the archives. I went to, uh, did a lot of film archives in France and Italy, and I happened to have done a lot in Algeria previously, so this is the way it all started. You have to think of this idea of nation when you're invited to represent a country. I'm not even sure the word representing is correct nowadays, really. In my case, I really wanted to transform the French pavilion into a film studio. And of course, cinema and film entails for me uh, the idea of magic and trickeries and lies and fiction and reality. So by turning the French pavilion into this film studio, I was also, you know, bringing this idea that what does it mean, you know? Uh, to be French, especially for somebody like me who lives in London, and I have lived in London for 30 years, who is French and who is also Algerian. Then my project itself and the film I made was very much about friendship and bringing all my artistic community and sharing that pavilion with them. And obviously my friends come from all over the world because like uh, all the artists sitting here, we travel a lot, we build friendship all over the world. So you have friends that comes from, you know, everywhere. But also I looked at certain type of cinema and that kind of uh, what I call the triangular, the triangle between France, Algeria and Italy. I didn't do a French project in many ways, whatever that means, but like a project which is in some ways much more based in Italy because the Italian cinema of the period I was researching for me was extremely important and very rich. You just heard from Zainab Sadera and right before that, Stan Douglas, both clips taken from the conversation What is Nation in Venice. In the next episode, we explore the theme of motherlands and otherlands thinking about ideas of collaboration, placemaking, and what it really means to call somewhere home. Thank you for listening. Catch you in the next episode.